I'm Jeff Hebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People Like You and Me. And we are in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. This is season one, episode 33, continuing uh, to follow John's description of the life and the teachings of Jesus. And we're going to jump right into the text today. It's from John chapter 12, and I'm going to start reading with verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. That's a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. In this podcast, we begin to look at the final week of Jesus' life as he approaches the cross. And our gospel guide, John, he packs in so many details into these last few days. It's almost half the entire gospel. He gives us a wonderful glimpse into the most personal and intimate moments between Jesus and his disciples. The upper room, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, what happened at the foot of the cross. And so we begin with the event that kind of launched this last Holy Week, the procession into Jerusalem that we call Palm Sunday. We're going to continue to follow Jesus' movements in the next podcast as well. It's not always a good idea to associate yourself with Jesus. Back on December 13, 1999, there was a presidential debate in Iowa, and a panel of presidential contenders were asked, what philosopher-thinker do you admire most? And they went around the stage, and each one gave their answer. Uh, Ralph Nader said uh, 19th century author Henry David Thoreau. Uh, Al Gore named an environmentalist, and George Bush said Jesus Christ. And the moderator of the panel was shocked and asked him why. He didn't ask any of the others why they chose their person, only Bush. And, well, Bush replied, When you turn your heart and your life over to Christ, when you accept Christ as the Savior, it changes your heart. The next day, George Bush was mercilessly raked over the coals by the media and even the liberal religious leaders uh, for daring to introduce Jesus' name into the debate. He said Jesus Christ changed his life and they just piled on him for simply associating himself with Jesus Christ. But with all the debate about Jesus going on in our nation today, it's easy to distinguish between what we might call the cultural Christ from the Christ of history and scripture. 
The cultural Christ, that's the Christ that is permissible to talk about in popular culture. That Christ is someone who's remembered as a preacher of peace, a philosopher of love, an advocate of acceptance, walking around in the hot sun, wearing flip-flops, long hair, sort of a leftover hippie. But he's safe, he's tame, he's non-confrontational. He's a good mascot, he's no threat. And yet there's no substance either. The real Jesus of history and of scripture, he set people on their heels. We've seen that over and over again in the Gospel of John. Jesus came with a spiritual slap in the face for the complacent. He came with a wake-up call. Remember all of the seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Each one of those shatters this myth of the cozy Christ who is easy for us to control or ignore. I am the bread of life, the very substance that makes life meaningful. I am the light of the world to dispel your darkness and expose your deceptions. I am the door to God, the only door. You can't go in any other way. I'm the good shepherd. You can entrust your life into my safekeeping. I'm the resurrection and the life. The power of eternity is in his hands. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Not just your truth or my truth, but the truth. I and the Father are one the visible expression of the invisible God, to be adored and to be obeyed. Each one of these statements came with a beautiful combination of intense, passionate love and a forceful call to surrender and personal commitment. Jesus changed people's lives. That same power is still here today in Christ. And if you're not open to that kind of change, then any conversation about Jesus can feel like a personal attack on your own sacred space. People do feel threatened by the real Jesus. Look at today's scripture that comes on the heels of Jesus' greatest miracle in bringing Lazarus back to life after he had been dead for four days. The word about Jesus is spreading like a grass fire. Great crowds come seeking him, so much so that in verse 19, the nervous Pharisees say, look how the whole world has gone after him. They are in panic mode to stop the stampede of people coming to Jesus. Well, they think, what's the best way to discredit him? Get rid of the evidence. Get rid of the evidence of his power, meaning Lazarus. Lazarus was this walking testimony to the incredible power of Jesus. Yeah, I was dead, and now I'm alive, and Jesus did that. That's a pretty powerful testimony. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death. And that's what it says in verse 10. I mean, poor guy. I mean, what did he do? It's not his fault. He just came back from the dead. But because of his relationship with Christ, there's now a price on his head, too. Now, we don't know what happened to Lazarus. We don't know if this plot was ever carried out. It's possible that he may have been one of those who died because of his association with Jesus. Many followers of Jesus were killed in the months and years immediately following Christ's resurrection. He could have been among them. Thousands upon thousands of Christians were killed for their faith in the first century. Some were killed by angry mobs and street violence, and others were martyred through organized government-sanctioned persecution. Roman emperors like Nero and others led full-scale genocide against Christians. And we know from history that all of the apostles, except for John, all of them were killed or executed for their relationship with Christ and their commitment to spreading the gospel. If you've never done so, read Fox's Book of Martyrs for details. Andrew was crucified, Philip stoned to death, Paul beheaded in Rome, Peter crucified upside down. The Apostle John was the only one who was not martyred. 
He lived, but he was banished to this remote barren island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea. But that's where he wrote the word that we read in the gospel. That's where he wrote the book of Revelation. Many people paid a significant price for giving their lives to Jesus. So Lazarus now is a marked man. The Pharisees plotted, planned to put him to death. Causes us to pause and think about the nature of commitment to Christ. We tend to focus on, on the wonderful positive blessings of being a Christian, and there are many. Love, joy, peace, strength, the joy of being embraced by our Heavenly Father. That's all true, but it's really not fair to just leave it there. Because it's only half the story. There's another dimension. Jesus was very straightforward with his disciples when he said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's Mark 8, 34. The cross is an instrument of death. It's an instrument of torture. It's an instrument of martyrdom. And Jesus was saying every one of us who's a Christian has to be willing to take up that cross. Or remember Jesus' words coming up for us in John 15, 30. Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. How powerful and sobering are those words. Following me may mean the cross for you. Some will give their lives for Jesus. It's conceivable that we may be called upon to suffer for Jesus, that you may be called upon to suffer for your faith in Jesus. And that's what we need to remember, that to suffer for Christ is a privilege. We need to be honest and realize that it's not always popular to be a believer in Christ. In fact, many Christian writers over the centuries have said that basically you should worry if you're always well thought of in our culture, if your presence is only to support the status quo and to be nice to people and to be liked by everyone. I'm not suggesting what we need to do is to intentionally get people mad at us because of Jesus. It's not something we should seek out like we're spiritual masochists or something. You know, just being obnoxious Christians is not what we're talking about here. But we should have a radical dimension to our faith that at times cannot fit into the world system. The status quo that cannot align itself with the world's values or ethos and may stand against it in a stark contrast. Lazarus had to pay a price for the miracle new life that he received. And so did a lot of other people down throughout history. So here's a tough question. Has being a Christian ever cost you anything? Has it ever cost you anything to be a follower of Jesus? And if so, what was it? What sacrifice have you ever had to make because of being true to Christ? I want you to chew on that for a while this week. Where has being a Christian cost you anything? So what did Lazarus do? Nothing. He had committed his life to Christ and he became a beacon to Jesus. Folks began flocking to Jerusalem. Historians estimate the crowd of pilgrims uh, in the whole city of Jerusalem that uh, Passover to be about 2,700,000. That's a lot of people. Not all of them witnessed Jesus' parade into town, but many of them were excited to see him. The reason the crowd went to see him was mainly because of Lazarus. And they gave Jesus a king's welcome. To appreciate this, we have to appreciate the donkey. Usually I think of donkeys as a not very attractive animal. Uh, mostly our only exposure is when you ride them up Pikes Peak or down the Grand Canyon. I rode one up and down a thousand steps at the ancient temple site in Petra in the country of Jordan. Poor donkey, I thought he was going to fall over the edge with me on top of him. 
But donkeys are tough little critters, and they can carry some 300-pound guy on their backs, no problem. That's not me, by the way. So they're known for their stamina. They keep going. But at the time of Jesus, the donkey was actually a very valuable and respected animal. Wealthy people gave each other, uh, gave each of their children a donkey as a gift. Instead of a car, you got keys to your own donkey as long as you pay for your own insurance, I guess. Also, the donkey was the animal that a king would ride. The king would ride on a horse for battle. But if the king was on a mission of peace or victory, he'd ride on a donkey. Jesus was on a mission of peace. There was some violence connected to it, but the violence was all directed at himself as he went to the cross. So Jesus comes riding in as a king on a mission of peace. He was there to establish peace with God for all eternity. Peace to the world who needed sins forgiven. He's going to bring peace to my heart and peace to yours. Now think about the makeup of the crowd. They were a pretty uh, diverse group. First, you had just the casual observers. They came for Passover. They were there a little early. They heard about Jesus. He heals people, right? Well, let's go down and catch some of the action. No particular heartfelt interest, but they're drawn just because they just want to see what's going on. So they're the casual observers. And then you had sincere seekers. And those were the people who were really looking for something in their lives. Everything they had heard about Jesus made it sound like he might be the answer to their needs. They were looking for a Messiah, someone to save them from their bondage. They were looking for something to give themselves to. And they thought maybe Jesus was it. And then third group, there were some convinced believers, those whose lives had already been touched by Jesus. And they walked in with him as believers. And there were lepers, pathetic losers, as well as beautiful people, wealthy people. The whole spectrum of people had been impacted by Jesus. At this stage, they wanted to be identified with Christ. And so they could say, here's a palm branch for the one who radically changed my life. Sure, he's a marked man, but I'm on his team. Here's my palm branch. I stand with him. And fourth were the hostile rejectors, those with an active hatred of Jesus. They watched him and they were torn up inside with anger. And this is when their hatred crystallized into action. So four categories represented back then, but also I think in our world today. Where are people with Jesus? Some are casual observers. They're curious. They want to see what's going on. To them, we should say, welcome. Check it out. Keep an open heart. For sincere seekers, those people who are really looking for something, life hasn't had all that much meaning. They get up in the morning, grind it out, go to bed at night. And so they ask the question, is this it? Is it just going to be a grind like this until I head up to a parade of cars, you know, I, until I head up a parade of cars who all have their lights on? No, maybe they're ready for the Messiah. And convinced believers, those whose lives have been touched, we want to lay down our palm branch before him. You don't have to wait until the next Palm Sunday to show your loyalty to Jesus. You can lay down your branch symbolically every day. Recommit your life to him every day. Tell others the wabi-sabi good news that my life has been radically claimed by Jesus. I want to be identified as his disciple. I want to be involved with his cause in this hurting world. Yes, I've been touched and I'm ready to go all in with Jesus. And hostile. Because of some bad experience in their past with religion or a reaction to their own sinfulness or a commitment to a false cultural God, some folks almost have a visceral reaction against the name of Jesus. 
In some ways, it's like they're afraid of it, really. I mean, you can't use his name to pray on a football field. You can't see a cross in any public space. We'll dismiss anything Christian just out of hand. And it is hardest to reach them, to let folks know that they would be welcome in Christ's family, that they would be welcome to come to worship. I hope they would feel as much of a welcome as anybody who comes to church who are actively or passively rejecting Jesus. But, you know, their shields are up. And so they're on the defensive and even on the offensive against the faith. So really only the Holy Spirit can can penetrate that hard shell. What's the hardest for the believer is to create a friendship that is not a conditional one, a friendship that doesn't depend on whether or not the person responds to the gospel, a friendship like Jesus offers. You know, Jesus watched a rich man, rich young ruler, walk away, a young man who couldn't turn his life over to Jesus, and he was actively rejecting Jesus. And as he walks away, I think we see Jesus with some tears running down his face. Well, why? Well, the scripture tells us that he loved the young man. His love was not less in the man's rejection. His love was not less in the man's rejection. He grieved over the weight of sin that that young man would carry. In Jesus, we sense that kind of acceptance for those who for some reason cannot believe, even if actively holding God out of their lives. In no way should that person feel non-caring or rejection as a person. Christ's hand of salvation is still being held out to that person, but they do have to turn and grab on. And you may know someone like that. And so pray that God will move in their life to the point where they are able to allow a triumphal entry of Jesus into their heart. Isn't that a great image? Jesus riding in triumph right into your heart. I want to join with that crowd of folks who laid palm branches in front of Jesus and shouted, Hosanna, save us. Because for the same reason, he's touched my life. I hope you have a great week. Take care.